You are listening to Victory Alabang podcast. Why is there a need to be prepared to give an answer to questions about your faith? Find out in this message by Pastor Rice Brooks. Well, good morning, everybody. Magomagomaga. Okay, if I said that right. Well, we've had quite a weekend. We did um, Friday. We had uh, maybe six or seven hours of teaching, and then we did it again yesterday. For seven hours, so we repeated that seminar. So I'm not in the same shape I used to be, but I'm glad to be here. Your energy and your faith is going to carry me through this service. I, I just every time somebody speaks Tagalog, I feel like I'm missing out on an inside joke. <laughs> if I could just say Tagalog words, I think you would love me. So um, sorry, I'm an English American, which means I just speak English. So let's start out today and pray, and let's trust the Holy Spirit will help us. Father, thank you so much for this moment to be invited into this people, to be a part of this family, and to be a part of this mission that was the great mission that you gave us 2,000 years ago. We did not come up with this. These are not our ideas. These are not our values or our vision or any of that. But Lord, we simply are wanting to be faithful in this generation as all the ones behind us that ran the race all the way back beyond your advent, beyond your appearance on earth, Moses and Abraham, in every generation there was a faithful group that took the baton and took the mission of what you had called them to do and were faithful. And Lord, that's what our desire is today, is just to be faithful. Lord, I'm asking that in my time here, this little moment I have, that I could add something in to the hearts of these people that would help them finish the race you call them to finish. To be better moms and dads, to be better, to be better leaders, to be better disciples, and to honor you more faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I say about this book, you know, sometimes when an American comes with a book, they think we're trying to sell something. Everything we do with this book stays here to help further the cause of Christ. So I can be shameless in promoting it uh, because you don't think I'm trying to make a, a peso out of it. But um, I wrote this book because from our country in America, uh, we're in a real crisis. Uh, when I came here in 1984, uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. There was a crisis in the Philippines, a crisis in terms of the government, in terms of just this sense of, of uncertainty. You know what? You can have the appearance of order. You can have all the nice prosperity, but be, be even in more crisis. I actually think America is in far more crisis today than the Philippines was in 1984. Uh, uh, three, three out of four young people leave high school, and when they get to college, they'll abandon their faith. Uh, very few churches actually are growing. Three percent actually grow through evangelism. And the ones that do grow, it's just people just uh, changing members. And so I, I set out to figure out why that is. Why is there such um, a weakness in terms of our faith when America was so strong? America had a foundation of faith and we took that foundation and built a great nation. We didn't just prosper materially, but we prospered spiritually. And we flooded the world with missionaries. Uh, yet, America's losing their faith. They forgot who they are, like a, like a fighter who's been knocked out and doesn't know where he is, or, where, or like in a cartoon where somebody takes you know, a board and hits somebody in the head and they hear 
you know, birds flying. That's America. We're dazed and confused right now. And so we have to come to this declaration to say, it used to be we could say, in God we trust. Now we have to say, God's not dead. We have to establish that. Uh, there's actually a large group of skeptics, uh, atheists, uh, men like Richard Dawkins, uh, writing books called The God Delusion, saying that if you believe in God, it's just a delusion. Uh, I actually went down and writing this book to Australia to the Global Atheist Convention. Uh, 3,500 atheists were present, uh, and me, and uh, sitting there wanting to hear, well, what do you have to say? If this is such a big deal that you would have such a big convention about atheism, then maybe you've got something significant to say. On the opening night of the convention, what I got was not some great philosophical or scientific treatise. What I got was four professional comedians. And all they did was ridicule and mock God and mock Christianity. And make no mistake, it's Christianity that they're after. As one of your leaders said, when they said, well, the Philippines is very much a religious people. We know there's a God. But trust me, because of the internet, because of the way the global culture is, that typhoon is coming. And so you're not going to be able just to stay in your bubble and think that, well, as long as we're in the Philippines and we believe in God, that it doesn't matter what the rest of the world believes. God has a calling on this nation, all the way back to St. Philip, if you will, who was the evangelist. There is a calling on the Philippines to be that great evangelist. And that's why everywhere I go, I just came back from Israel a few weeks ago, Filipinos everywhere. In fact, I'm smart enough because I've been here to know when we play pickup basketball games, I choose the Filipinos. People say, well, they're not very tall, but I know they stop on a dime. They're quick, you know, so, and we always win. But everywhere I go, whether it's New York City, you can name it, Filipinos are there. So I'm hoping that today what I can share with you will, and what we shared this weekend will be an encouragement to say, not only do you know God is real, but that you can show that He's real. Uh, watch this scripture, 1 Peter three fifteen. I just need a little bit of water. That's going to help the brother. First uh, Peter three fifteen. Peter, who obviously recovered, thank you, recovered from the dark night of unbelief. Peter said, "Always be ready, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so you've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared not only to explain the gospel, but what if somebody has a question about how do you know the Bible's true?" How do you know this is real? How do you know there is a God? How do you, how do you explain it beyond your own feelings? Uh, again, when I, in, in this generation, you're going to hear a lot of crazy things. I have heard a lot of crazy things. I actually, I was on an airplane and I looked over and there was a woman with a beehive hairdo. Do you know what a beehive hairdo is? Now, in my part of the world, the higher the hair, the closer to God. So this woman was actually reading the Bible on an airplane. And I turned to her and I said, so you're a Christian. I just assumed that would be obvious. Reading the Bible on an airplane with the beehive kind of religious looking hairdo. She snapped her head at me. She said, no. She said, I believe I am God. As soon as she said that, I just kind of thought, oh, what have I done? And finally, as she began to explain that she was trying to read the Bible to understand who she was, is God, to show you how bold I am, I looked at the woman and I said, Ma'am, don't let me bother you. 
And a few minutes later, it's like the Lord tapped me on the shoulder and said, Son, you're the only one strange enough to talk to this weirdo. <laughs> and I finally, I looked at the woman. I said, Ma'am, if you're God, I've got a lot of questions for you. So you're going to meet pe people like that. Uh, I was in one university campus and uh, they came to me and they said, Pastor Rice, we've got you speaking in the campus bar, in the pub. And I said, that's good. They said, no, no, you don't understand. While you're preaching, they will be drinking, having beer, alcohol, while you're speaking. That's the only place we could get you to speak. And I said, well, it's probably, that's okay. I said, it probably won't be hard to get them to sing, you know, a lot easier than it is at that early church service on Sunday at Bethel. So I thought, okay, so I get into this bar, having a group of people and the people are drinking alcohol all around on the outside. And this girl walks up to me and she's, as, when I'm done, and she said, she says, I don't believe in what you're saying. I said, okay. She said, because I believe the Bible came from outer space. UFOs brought it. <laughs> now, again, if you hear something like that, you have to pretend to not be scared or nervous. So I just kind of listen and didn't want to act, you know, it didn't want to act surprised. When she got through, I said, so let me I turned to a staff worker that was with me. Her name was Cindy Hollander. And I kind of looked and I said, I told this woman, I said, look, um, I said, uh, okay, I said, so you think that the Bible came from, you know, aliens? She said, yes. So I, I think I had a moment of inspiration. I looked at her and said, okay. <clears throat> I said, don't you think if people from outer space went to the trouble of coming all this way to bring the Bible, don't you think you ought to read it? I mean, let's just assume E.T. brought it. Let's just kind of... And it kind of hit her like a revelation. She goes, okay. I mean, think about it. But think about the kind of things you may find in here in your context that you're going to hear. And you've got to be ready. Maybe for the crazy, but maybe for something a little more straightforward. How do you know the Bible is God's Word? How do you know that Jesus is the only way? There's so many saviors. There's so many religious superstars and icons how do you know that jesus is the only way do you how do you know that is there evidence for that my older brother was an atheist he um many of you know my story but when i became a christian my atheist brother was in law school and he came home to talk me out of the christian faith he had studied the bible to find the contradictions in it so as my big brother was studying the Bible to find the contradictions, he, he thought he had all of his ammunition. So he came home to talk me, to talk me out of the Christian faith. And uh, my parents were a little nervous because I was now religious. So they left and let my brother kind of be the one to talk to me. And uh, as my brother was sitting there laughing, he kind of started mocking the Bible. My clothes began to rip. My shirt ripped off. Green muscle came out of me and I began to preach to my brother now I could I wish I wish I could tell you that I answered every question but I really didn't have to because the Holy Spirit will give you the exact thing that is the stronghold in someone's mind I can't answer maybe everybody's question but I can answer enough of their questions to make them doubt their unbelief did you follow that? I can, ask, I can answer enough questions to make them doubt their unbelief. Because guess what? Unbelief is belief in reverse. 
They're believing something. They're just believing the wrong thing. And I looked at my brother and I basically said this. I said, look, it's not what's, what you don't know about God that's keeping you from Him. I said, it's what you do know. What it says in the book of Romans, it says that people suppress the truth through unrighteousness. What, what it's like, it's like taking a beach ball and trying to hold the ball under the water. The more people push down to hold the ball under the water, the more force comes back up. Romans 1 says they suppress the truth. So basically, when someone's running from God, they are actively suppressing some truth that they don't want to remember. They See, when you forget God, you forget God on purpose. When you forget God, it is a deliberate decision that I am not going to remember this. I am going to erase this. Listen to me. If you are running from God today and you showed up here on a Sunday morning, you are not doing a very good job. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, you want to be here. I'm assuming that everybody here, you're not running from God. You wouldn't have showed up here. People who are running from God never, very rarely will come to a place like this. That's why I'm so glad you're here. Because you're trying your best. Maybe you don't know God today. You're not trying to suppress the truth. I think that if you're here on a Sunday morning like this, you're wanting to know the truth. You're saying, let that beach ball come up and let's see what this is. Let these scriptures come up. Let me see whatever you want to say to me, God. I want to see it. So my brother started studying the Bible to find the contradictions in it. You know, that's what people tell me all the time. They say, oh, the Bible's filled with contradictions. So I said, okay, let's talk about them and I'll hand them a Bible. Let's just look at them. And they'll back away because they've never really been that close. You know, they say, oh, it's the Holy Bible. It's so holy, I wouldn't want to read it. And then I'll agree with them. I'll say, you know, the Bible does have a lot of contradictions. I'll just try to, you know, bridge a gap. I'll say, I said, the Bible does have a lot of contradictions. It contradicts most of what you're doing. Um, but the reason why most people don't like the Bible is because the Bible shows us exactly what we look like. When I was young, my, I, I discovered my mother's makeup mirror. And it had two sides to it. One side was normal. And you flip it over and the other side was magnified. And it had lights all around it. And I remember the first time I turned that mirror over and looked in the magnified side with the lights on at my face and understood at that moment why women wear makeup. Because I wanted to put some on too. When you look and see what you really look like and you say, the first thing is you want to say, oh, that's not me. The magnified intensity that shows you what you look like. And this is what my brother didn't want to see. My brother didn't want to see. And my, all I really did was just turn God's Word and said, let's just look at what God's Word says. And I'll never forget this moment because I just basically stood up. It was on my parents in their backyard, in a little, in a little uh, outdoor area they had. And I said, my brother's name is Ben. I said, Ben, I said, look. I said, it's not what you don't know about God that's keeping you from Him. It's what you do know. You're suppressing the truth that you know. You know God is real. 
So I looked at him. I said, just give me your hand. You're going to get saved. I don't think, I think an angel grabbed his arm. I grabbed his hand, prayed for him. He asked Christ into his heart. I put him in my pickup truck, drove around Dallas, Texas, till I found a swimming pool. I baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, he said, you know, you hadn't really answered my questions. But he says, I think I was asking the wrong questions. Not long after that, my entire family came to Christ. And so what was funny was my brother told a law school student that he was coming home to get me out of the born again thing. And quite ironically, I ended up getting him out of the atheist thing. And I've been doing that ever since. We do a little thing called SALT. It's called SALT, S-A-L-T. We start conversations. We ask questions. We listen. And then we tell the story. You're going to be amazed as we begin to engage the world around us. If we'll learn to ask the right questions. If we'll learn to listen. Then people will almost instinctively want to hear what you have to say. Because if you don't follow God today, you've got some explaining to do. How do you make sense of the world we live in? How do you explain some things? In fact, let me give you one more verse here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Then I'm going to give you four questions as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It says, we demolish arguments. Say demolish. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This doesn't sound like a very passive ministry, does it? It doesn't say, well, we have some arguments and we kind of take turns listening and, you know, hey, you have this belief. No, that doesn't mean we have a, an angry spirit, but the truth of God will demolish the contrary arguments when the truth is let loose. We demolish arguments at every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now why do we take every thought captive? Why do we take every thought captive? Do you know why? Because it only takes one thought to take you captive. When I listen to people and ask them questions, I hear beliefs that came into them or thoughts that came into them and those thoughts set up and begin to form strongholds in their mind fears are like that you know fear is something that you have all your life and you can be a little kid i remember when i was a little kid i was afraid that there was a monster living under my bed it was dark under there there was all kind of you know noises would come out from under the bed and i just had in my imagination that something was under the bed now, I, wouldn't, I would never leave my arm hanging over the bed. Because I knew that that monster would take my arm, at least cut my hand off, and drag it into the abyss under my bed. Now, that was something when I'm a little kid. But I grew up, get into my 20s. I know there's no monster under the bed. But my arm would fall off in the, as a 20-year-old, and I'm, I said, well, there's no monster there. But in my head, I'm going, but just in case, you know. <laughs> I mean, I could realize that somehow still in my mind there was something there 
I remember going to see The Exorcist. How many of you remember The Exorcist? This is a story of a demon-possessed girl. Actually, people say that there was a story that, that The Exorcist came from that came out of the Philippines because there was this demon-possessed girl. A real-life story in a, in, a, in a jail, and they were having recordings, and I think the great legendary Lester Summerall came and cast the devil out of this girl. But The Exorcist was this story of a girl, demon-possessed girl, and... You know, and I, I remember my, my brother, before he came to Christ, he and this big athlete, they said, let's, let's go to the movie. And I, I thought, I don't want to go see The Exorcist. So we go to the movie, and people are waiting in line to get in, like you would wait in line for Lord of the Rings or some big blockbuster today. People are waiting in line to get in the movie. And all of a sudden, they let the movie out, and people started leaving so we could go in, and people were crying Somebody had fainted, they had drugged them out, and I started looking at the fear in the eyes of people that were leaving. And I decided, I'm going to go home. And my brother said, no, you're going in, this is just fake, it's just, you know, and so I, I go into the movie, and I'm sitting there watching The Exorcist. Now this is way back in the day when it just came out. And here's this demon-possessed girl, she's screaming, her head is on, her head is turning all the way around, just 360 degrees on her body. The bed is shaking, and the minister is just kind of throwing water on her. The priest and I just and I remember walking away, going, "I think God lost that fight." And I remember the darkness that I felt when I thought God can't really, God's not bigger than this evil force. We drove home. My brother was older than me. He drove home. First of all, he drove this big uh, American football player home, this big guy. He drove him home. I didn't know how scared I was until he got home and he would not walk to the door by himself. When he would, he wanted us to walk him to the door. I thought, I'm officially scared to death. Then they took me to my parents' house and let me out. My brother did. So I walk into my parents' house. It's dark. It's late. I went by my bedroom, I looked in there and said, I'm not going in there. I went to my father's, I said, I'm going to go see daddy because I know the devil will not mess with daddy. <laughs> so, so I go and I laid, I was so scared, I laid down on the, on the end of the bed where the dog, I'm, I'm knocking the dog out of the way. On there, I, get, I had the dog's blanket, get out of here. My dad woke up, he said, what are you doing in here? I said, oh, I'm sorry, like I was confused, wrong room. And I go into my room, turn all the lights on. I'm looking for my shotgun. I open my drawer. I found this little green Bible, little Gideon Bible. They give you a little New Testament. And then my grandmother had given me this little Catholic medallion that said, that said St. Christopher, protect us. I remember I got that St. Christopher out. I said, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to need you tonight. <laughs> and I just, I just got that Bible in one hand, I got the St. Christopher in the other, and I just, every light on, I just held on, because I knew the bed was going to start shaking. I tell people I, I would hear noises in the room, but I didn't want to turn around because I thought my head would keep turning. But you know what? When I got born again, when I got into a Bible study, I began to read the truth of who Jesus was. That he's not a skinny man with a sheep around his neck. 
And I began to realize who the devil was. Now I'm not here to revile the devil, but I'm going to tell you what. The Bible says that one day we will look on him and say, is this the man that deceived the nations? But let me tell you something. If the, if, if the, movie, if the movie would have been based on truth, if the movie would have been based on truth, then any born-again, spirit-filled believer could have walked into that demon-possessed house and told that demon, shut up, get out of here. But then that wouldn't have been much of a movie, how the girl got saved, started a small group. I mean, that's not going to be a big blockbuster. We demolish arguments. We demolish arguments. I, I have spent my life listening to people and helping untie the knots in their mind. People have crazy thoughts. You have to know God's Word because the enemy's belching out of hell everything he can do to get you to be afraid, to get you to be distracted. It says we take every thought captive. You know what? You can't stop the birds of the air from flying over your head. But you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. And you have to recognize when some of those thoughts hit you. I don't know if you've ever, you know, I remember the first time I had a, like a crazy thought. I was sitting in a principal's office at school, little kid, and this thought hit me. Why don't you slap him? This thought just kind of flew by me. And I'm sitting here having this, you know, I was at, I was at the University of Paris. And I was doing a seminar, all day seminar, and I went and I spoke. In the morning, in the afternoon, we took off, or lunchtime, I went down into the subway. I went down into the subway, and when I was down there waiting, I actually could hear a voice saying, jump in front of the train. It was so loud, I stepped back and I said, out loud, I spoke to it. I said, I'm not going to jump in front of the train. I mean, French people thought I was crazy anyway, just because I was American being there, so that just isn't normal, you know. I went back that afternoon, and I asked the students... I said, how many of you have ever been down there and heard a voice telling you to jump? Every single student raised their hand. The enemy is doing everything he can to broadcast fear, unbelief. The way, listen, you and I are called to fight the fight of faith. And the reason why we fight the fight of faith is because we have the promises of God. We have these promises. And so the only chance the enemy has is to get us to drop them. If we think they're not true, if we think that God's Word's not real, then we don't have confidence to stand before anybody and speak the truth to them. And I'm here to tell you that you can. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 is my final verse, and then I'm going to try to close today with four questions. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everybody say impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Now let me stop right there. Why do you think that would be? Why, why would that phrase be true? Of all the things we could do for God, why is it that our good works, our, all the things you could say I'm doing to be religiously accepted, why is it that faith is the prerequisite to truly pleasing. You know, if we want to know what if we want to know what God likes, if you really want to know God, see, we think we know what someone likes, and so we do things for them that they really don't really appreciate. I mean, have you have ever had a Christmas gift that you didn't want? 
and you did what we call re-gift, you know. You give that, you pass that blessing on to somebody else. Well, when we want to know, what is God like? What does He want? He really wants people to trust Him. He really wants people to trust Him. You know, my son is here, Wyatt. One of the greatest things, the greatest thing, I, if, I, if I caught him, if I listening in on a conversation, if I heard him say, you know, I really can't trust my dad, but dad's a good guy, but you know, I really can't trust him. I mean, that breaks your heart. What if I heard him say, you know what, no matter what mistakes my dad made, I know I trust my dad. He'll come through. You know, when you hear somebody defending you and saying they trust you when they're not visible or present, there's something about that that moves your heart. God is looking for people that have faith in the midst of a perverted and unbelieving generation. He says, and without it, faith is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So notice this twofold pattern. If you really believe He exists, then you'll seek Him. In Acts chapter 17, Paul stands up to speak to a, a group of philosophers and he says, he said, God created the world and everything in it. He created from one man, every nation, to live on the face of the earth. He determined the boundaries of their habitation. And he said, and for he himself gives life and breath and everything else. And here's what he said. He did this so that men would seek him. As if they might find him as someone groping in the dark. You see, if you really believe God is there, if you truly believe it, and you're not just saying, well, I know I'm supposed to believe it. Many people kind of carry a faith that their parents had or that they think is culturally right, but deep down they wonder, is He really there? If you really knew He was there, the evidence would be, according to the Bible, is that you would seek Him. So that's why I start with this. How do you know He's there? How do you know He's there? If somebody asks you today, and I'm going to give you a little summary of this in four questions. And then we're going to pray. You got your thinking hat on today? You, re you ready to think with me? Here's four questions that you need to write down about the existence of God and to prove that. Number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Hold that question there. This is one of the great perplexities, if you will, conundrums of philosophy. Godfrey Leibniz in the 1700s, the co-founder of calculus, differential calculus, asked this question, why is there something rather than nothing? You see, skeptics have to come to the grips, come to grips with the fact that there was this moment called the Big Bang, and in that one moment, everything came into existence. Science can tell us that. Not only did matter and energy come, come, matter and energy come into existence, but space and time itself came into existence. Think about it. Our brains bend at the thought of space and time coming into existence. But that's exactly what physicists tell us. Billions of years ago, as they would say it, this thing happened. But yet, before that, there was nothing. And so the question is, why is there something rather than nothing? I was on one college campus and I walked in and I, it was a classroom and I said, okay... You've got two choices. Either everything you see, the earth, the atmosphere, matter, energy, birds, all of this, humans, either everything you see brought itself into existence or it was started by something besides itself. 
Seemed like a pretty simple choice. Either everything you see started itself, a naturalistic dismay brought itself into existence, or it was started by something besides itself. And the kid in the back of the classroom raised his hand. He said, there's a third choice. I said, well, what is it? He goes, maybe we're not here at all. I said, okay. I said, well, in that case, you would be here, so be quiet. But we are here. And guess what? When the universe came into existence, it was as if if you had a universe starter kit. If you had a universe starter kit, it's like in the back of the soundboard. How many, my friend Lester, is that you back there? Is it Lester? Dexter. Sorry about that. Dex, how you doing back there? Dex, on your soundboard, how many knobs do you have at the bottom? A lot. Okay, good, good. Let's start with one, two, three, and C. Count that. On the bottom, how many do you have? 48 knobs. Now think about it. If you had a universe starter kit with those kind of knobs, what if one of those knobs is gravity? How much gravity do you put in a universe? See a kid going, mm-hmm. Well, if you put too much gravity, the universe never gets out of the starting blocks. If you don't put enough, then molecules can't form, stars don't form. And that knob of gravity had to be set precisely. And it's not 1 to 10 or 1 to 50. Trillions and trillions of options. Exactly set. And then you had another knob called entropy. Then you had another knob called the strong nuclear force. Nuclear force. And that had to be set. And then the weak. And all of those knobs, more than 48, had to be precisely set within trillions of options, each one. And if if one knob is off, it doesn't matter if all are the same. It's called the fine-tuning of the universe. And from the very beginning, scientists tell us, and they're stunned at it. They say the universe was designed from the very beginning to bring life into existence. Now, do you know know the only question, do you know the only objection that a skeptic has? They say, well, maybe there's an infinite number of universes. In other words, if you have an infinite number of chances to win the lottery, then you'll eventually win it. But life as it is, is absolutely amazing. Second question. Speaking of life, where did life come from? Evolution only tells you what happens after you get life. It doesn't tell you where life came from. Charles Darwin, who in 1859 wrote The Origin of Species, Charles Darwin, he thought that the cell, a living cell, was like a blob of goo. And now we understand that the cell is like a little city. And the information in a cell is beyond description. You know, where's my phone here? Have have you ever gotten a pocket text? Has anybody ever sent you a text that you could tell they did not mean to send you? They may have sat on their phone and you look at the text and it has some random letters. Has anybody ever seen that? Now, if somebody texted you and said, don't tell anybody, but I cheated on the test. Now, there's no way they randomly sat on their phone and constructed, don't tell anybody I cheated on the test. 
just one sentence. If you saw an intelligent sentence like that, you would instantly know that that sentence was not constructed by accident. It may have been sent to me accidentally. What would you do if you got a sentence on your cell phone three billion letters long? That's the information that's ordered in sequence in the human genome. Needless to say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why the world's most famous atheist of the past generation, Anthony Flew, who used to tell everybody, I'm willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads, he came to faith in God because he said, because of the information in DNA, I had to follow the evidence even if it led to God. Where did life come from? You know, the only answer the skeptics have is that maybe that life came from outer space. That somehow that UFOs brought life and planted us here as a colony. Not, that's not science, that's science fiction. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a universe? And why does this universe so, so mirror our mind? How does, why is it mathematically understandable? Einstein said it this way, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. Where did life come from? Question three. Why are we moral? Is good and evil real? One of the objections to God that I find, there's three primary ev uh, objections to God. One, people will say there's no evidence for God. And again, if you're looking for, listen, if you're looking for Bill Gates, or if you were looking for Steve Jobs, you don't break down an iPhone to see if he's there. Okay? In other words, when you're looking for the intelligent mind behind something that's made, you don't assume that the person who made it is actually one of the parts of his or her gadget. And so you look and see the complexity of information. That's why Romans chapter 1 says that God has clearly demonstrated who He is through what has been made. So, why are we moral? We can look at the universe and see that, yes, there's a creator. We can look at life and realize that it, 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 life could not have happened by accident. In fact, two atheists got together to decide the probability that life could have started itself. And they came up with this equation, one chance in 10 to the 40,000th. Now, to show you how big 10 with 40,000 zeros is, there's 10 to the 50th stars in the stellar universe. There's 10 to the 80th particles in the universe. 10 with 80 zeros. They said the chance that life could have started itself was one chance in 10 to the 40,000th. And then they said this. They said that's the same chance that a tornado could go through a junkyard, throw the debris up into the air, fall to the ground, piece together a 747 full of gas ready to fly. Impossible. But with all that said, the question is, why are we moral? When people try to say, well, I know that God is seen in creation, and you could say there might be a creator, but why is there so much evil in the world? I was sitting on an airplane next to a man, and he was mad at God. As soon as he found out I'm a minister, he starts saying, all this evil in the world, and the world's so crooked, and everybody's crooked. He said, I just don't believe in God because of all this evil. And I said, you know, I looked at him, I, said, I think he was, in, he was sitting in seat 14D. Remember the seat. 
I said, you know, I said, God can get rid of all the evil in the world instantly. I told him. I said, all he'd have to do is kill everybody. I said, but he tried that once. I said, the whole earth was wiped out except one family. Think about it. The whole earth was wiped out except one family. And the best family on earth still had some of the virus in them. And it replicated and evil continued to grow. And I looked at this man on the airplane and I said, you know, God's got a plan to not kill us, but to remove the evil from our heart and save us as people. In fact, I turned to him in a very dramatic way and I said, God wants to get rid of all the evil in the world, starting with seat 14D. I said, God wants to get rid of all the evil right out of this chair. You know what I found out? It was kind of sad. He wanted us to get rid of our evil, but he wasn't willing to give up his. C.S. Lewis would say it this way. I know that a line is crooked, but how would I know it's crooked unless I knew it was straight? What a straight line was. You see, if evolution were true, then there is no right and wrong. Good and evil are just illusions. But we know evil is right. In fact, a skeptic can't even describe the world that we live in without borrowing the Bible's terms to make sense of it. No matter who you are, no matter what, whether you're religious or even an atheist, even an atheist can do good things, not because they don't need God, but because God made them. And the law of God is written on every human heart. And that brings us to the fourth and final question, is who can we trust? And really, if I wanted to add something to this, who can we trust to fix us? Because isn't that what the real game is today? Everybody's promising they can fix us. Everybody's got something to peddle to us, a tape series, a book, a seminar. What's it after? Hey, trust me and I will fix you. And the question is, who can we trust to fix us? Why should we trust Jesus? Is Jesus just something you're trying out? Is it just something, well, try Jesus. If that doesn't work, then go try some other religious thing. What makes Him different than everybody else? We live in, a, we live in this world of, of absolute mistrust. We don't know who to talk to. We don't know who, what their angle is. And let me tell you, this as I close... God, this God of heaven, came down and submitted Himself to the ultimate science experiment. Jesus Christ, God Himself, became a man in Christ. And He lived the life we should have lived. And He died the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, the God of history. Listen, every prophet that ever spoke... When that prophet would speak, Isaiah, Jeremiah, whenever that prophet would speak, they would say things like, Thus saith the Lord. They would announce their words by saying, Thus saith the Lord. When Jesus spoke, He didn't say, Thus saith the Lord. He said, Truly I say to you. I love that scene. I just came back a few weeks ago from Israel and I love the Sea of Galilee. And have a friend there that has a water park and he'll take me out on his boat. And you know, almost every afternoon the storm comes up on the lake. And I'm imagining that scene where Jesus is out on the water walking. I don't know how, the Bible doesn't say it, but I think Jesus kind of probably walked like this. 
Jesus is out walking on the water and the disciples see him in the midst of the storm and they said, Jesus, is that you? I mean, he's like, Jesus going, it sure ain't Buddha. And I mean, here he comes out on the water. Who else is walking out on the water? I mean, he comes to a dead man's tomb named Lazarus and everybody's crying and Jesus said, roll the stone away. And they said, Master, it's been four days. He stinketh. That's what the King James said. I've had to use that scripture many, many times for people I've met. But Jesus said, roll the stone away. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. He had to say Lazarus. If he just said, come forth, the entire resurrection, he said, just Lazarus. Everybody else stay where you are. Lazarus, come forth. And out of this tomb. Never a man spoke like this. And then inexplicably, Jesus allows himself to be captured, to be tried. He isn't trying to get out of it. He said to, the, he said to Pilate, he said, don't you know, Pilate said, I have the authority to let you free. And he said, you have no authority unless my father gave you the authority. And after decisively dying, Jesus of Nazareth reappears three days later in the very city where it would have been easiest to disprove. The ultimate evidence that God's not dead is that Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected in history. And I heard a story of a guy in a mental hospital that he told everybody, you know, as I, as I say, you know, just because you say you're God doesn't make you God, you know. In fact, I heard, met a guy the other day in this church. He said, I came to, be, uh, to victory. He said, I thought I was Jesus. And I was trying to be announced. He, you know, he's now a disciple doing good. That demonic thing got off of him. But, you know, people can get delusional. And uh, so in one mental hospital, this guy thought he was Napoleon, the French general. You know, the guy with the hand in the shirt. And it, he kept telling everybody, I'm Napoleon. I'm Napoleon. And so the psychiatrist said, how do you know you're Napoleon? He said, God told me. And one of the inmates, in the, or one of the guys in the other bed raised up and said, I did not. So just because you think you're God doesn't make you God. Jesus' claim to be God was verified by His resurrection. You know what that tells me? Stand with me if you will. What that tells me is that we can trust Him. You know, when you get on the internet, when you get on the internet, you, you meet somebody out there that claims to be something Maybe they claim to be a 21-year-old guy or girl that might be in another school, but you find out they're 50 or 60 years old pretending to be something. That's kind of like the spirit world. In the world of the spirit, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. All the voices out there clamoring for our trust, the one we can trust is the one that died and rose again. No one else has done it. No other religious figure, no pastor, no priest, no rabbi. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We know God's real. He who comes to God must believe He exists. And that He's a rewarder of those that seek Him. And really all you have to do today is take a step toward Him and reach out and say, Lord, I'm seeking You today. Like I told you, if you're running from God and you showed up here, you're not doing a very good job. So if you're here today, that means you're seeking Him. So what I want to do is pray for you that you can take that next step to say, I want to come out of the darkness into the light and, and not only believe in God, but I want to be his disciple. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much 
for this enormous moment to be alive on this planet at this time in history. You've given us this great opportunity to know you and then to make you known. Lord, I'm asking today that if men and women are apart from you, they're not serving you, but thankfully they came here today, that you would give them a chance to respond. We hope you were inspired by that message. Connect is an important word in victory, because in all things we must connect with God through Jesus Christ. We also encourage everyone to be connected to one another via a victory group. To join one, simply inquire at the concierge through our website at www.victoryalabang.org or even through our Facebook page at facebook.com slash victoryalabang. Thank you and stay connected.